they advised him against agreeing, doing that photo shoot. Carl, that's crazy. Why on earth would you do it? They say he risks ruining his reputation. That posing for a female photographer in a pair of red pumps is insane. Everyone would laugh at him, and in front of him as well, even if there's a big brand behind the photo shoot. It's just that when others insist, he can't get over it. In 1994, when he's asked to pose for that photo, he's 33, and the Olympics of 1996 are getting closer and closer. He knows what people think. Okay, you're young, but there are younger athletes. Maybe your era is over. Enjoy what you've done so far. Carl Lewis can't accept it, because he still has so much to tell others, without anyone telling him what he should or shouldn't do. He thinks that the best is yet to come, and he agrees to pose for that photo shoot. Whatever happens, happens. These are the paths of a life with its emerging, falling and rising again. It's the desire to leave a trace, no matter what, even when everything is against you. These are the stories of Patterns. From time to time between workouts, he happens to scroll through social media on his smartphone to see what has been dreamed up for him. He looks with amazement at the mix of content that the algorithm offers up to find what interests him to see. Smartphone screens review faces, landscapes, animals, sounds, noises, graphics, people. It's true, we are all subject to the algorithm's calculations. And yet, with a smartphone in hand, we can still be the protagonists of our own story. Anyone, anytime, anywhere. What you can do with a phone is absurd. He smiles to himself because he doesn't want to make any wise statements. But he cannot help but think how much things have changed from when he was 20 or 30 years old. For better or for worse, he doesn't know how to answer. But this story fascinates him, where if you want, you can become a show schedule yourself. Carl Lewis tries to remember when he felt himself to be a show schedule. There were different moments. Well, of course, there are his triumphs on the track. There are his medals. And last but not least, there is a pair of red shoes. An icon is an icon, even when he eats, sleeps, and goes to the bathroom like other human beings. And thinking back to the past, even though he knew he had done something, Carl Lewis, in the prime of his 60 years, feels no different from others. Neither worse nor better. He is reminded of the reasons why so many people stop him on the street and repeat to him how much of a legend he is. He had a red tracksuit in Helsinki. His body was fine-tuned and at the same time ready to fly. In his eyes, the wild energy of a 22-year-old at the World Athletics Championships in Finland in 1983 There were still few who knew Frederick Carlton Lewis, who everyone called Carl. This boy with a determined expression, a lean physique, 
the looks of a god, but one who knows his place on earth. Or rather, let's not misunderstand. In 1983, Carl Lewis was already well known among experts and athletics fans. They knew that the son of two athletes, Evelyn Lawler and William Lewis, had the potential to be great. He was all in all trying. First of all, racing—the hunger to devour time and leave it behind—was in his DNA. Second, well, because he was really good. And he had been stacking up successes since his teenage years in both running and the long jump, winning prize after prize. But he still hadn't achieved international recognition. That's what he was lacking, and Finland gave him that. He had a red tracksuit in Helsinki. His body was fine-tuned and ready to fly in the final of the 100 meters. Athletes all start out with the same goal: to devour time. Carl Stark isn't the best. He's not perfect after the starting gun, but in the last few seconds of the race, he breaks through the time barrier with a mental and bodily thrust, passing all the others. His arms raise to the sky with a time of 10:06. He took home the gold medal, and it wasn't the only one at that championship, since he also won gold in the long jump. And in the four by one hundred relay, the Helsinki event, however, was only a dress rehearsal, a small part, a piece that was extremely important. But on that, the greatness of Carl Lewis was yet to be fully revealed. <sighs> Son of the wind, who knows whether Carl Lewis sometimes thinks of the usefulness of the nicknames given to champions? Nicknames serve the champions themselves. To understand that they have finally achieved something, then if it does not last, if you then fail, if from now on you are no longer what you were before, at least the nickname remains and does not age. Son of the wind. Nicknames also serve journalists, so they don't repeat your name too many times in their pieces, avoiding the risk of sloppiness. And then, of course, nicknames serve people, because they help carve the legend in stone, and remain in your memory. Which is a little instrument that works even when an athlete's body reaches its limits. Carl Lewis is biased. He cannot say whether that nickname is deserved or not. He is a person of class. Of course, however, thinking about 1984, Los Angeles 1984 Olympic Games. Carl Lewis, very young, was one of the promising athletes to bet on. After Helsinki, the boy born in Alabama in 1961, whose parents knew the risks of the trade and the stakes at play, made it clear that he was not competing just for the sake of it. You may say, "Well, it's normal. If you're at the Olympics, you're not just going to look good, hoping to bring a medal, any medal, home." And Carl Lewis is a person who was born to win. Only that, unlike many athletes, there was one thing he had understood: victory, after all, is just a word. That is part of a much wider semantic and philosophical field, that of awareness, a concept on which he built his career and his life. At Los Angeles, Carl Lewis ran and jumped. He is always known, thanks to the teaching of his parents, how important it is to go beyond words like victory and defeat. 
He knows well that to be a champion, you mustn't think of annihilating the others. You mustn't just throw yourself into the mix of the competition, which of course is crucial, but it can't be all. 100 meters, 200 meters, long jump, four by 100 relay, four disciplines, four gold medals which Carl Lewis took home from that Olympics. In the 100 meters, he started from block seven. He made a strong, intelligent start. Sam Grady, at five, started better, but immediately afterwards, Carl freed himself from the ground, little by little, moving forward, as light as a feather, cradled both by the wind and by the strength of his body. Carl Lewis was running and thinking with his extreme intelligence of the physique he had forged during his youth when the dream met the discipline. He gradually perceived his rivals were always behind him, further and further behind him. Not for the lack of talent or anything else, but because they were different. They had not experienced intellect combined with strength. He, on the other hand, had. He cheered, jumped in the red tracksuit and the number 915. He bursts through the camera, framing him on the track. The 100 meters was one of four medals, which immediately led to comparisons with Jesse Owens, who in 1936, a black man, under the eyes of the Fuhrer, humiliated the Nazis, taking home four gold medals in the same disciplines as Karl. Jesse, like Karl, ran. Jesse, like Karl, devoured time. Jesse, like Karl, was born in Alabama. Jesse, like Carl, was a black man in a world where white men were dominant. It's something to come to terms with, even if you're an extremely well-known athlete, even if you're the star of athletics and the son of the wind. But Carl has always been able to look beyond duty, beyond what one has to be content with, beyond his limits. He has never taken anything as guaranteed, nor for granted. The personality of his parents was central in this. They always taught him one thing. Want something? You have to commit not so much to achieving it as to understanding why you want to do it. Is it narcissism? Is it to fixate on the idea of doing great things? Or is there really something, is there really a wild energy in your body that is fed by your soul? and that can lead you to do extraordinary things for yourself and for others. Otherwise, it is vanity, desire for victory, at the end of the day, selfishness. If instead you think there's something more, well, it must be the best you can be. And when you understand how to do it, the triumphs will come, the medals will come, and above all, people will come to thank you for inspiring them. As he scrolls, as all people do in different parts of the planet through the content on his smartphone, Lewis thinks back to the son of the wind, who is, after all, him. To a concept of fame that today has become something else, in an age in which anyone becomes a great protagonist of their life, if they want, and all they need is a mobile phone. Who knows whether his story has served these people? Of course, they experience a glory that is different from his. Because the Lewis method of dealing with success was unique. With joy, sure, but also with measure, 
Because it is important when you win and become Carl Lewis, not to continue yearning for gold and medals in a spasmodic way. It's knowing how to keep your lifestyle, your balance, your consistency. Power, of course. Power that, however, without control, risks going off the rails. And the medals kept on coming. Also in Seoul in 1988 at the Olympics, Lewis won gold in the long jump and silver in the 200 meters. But in the final of the 100 meters, he succumbed to a sprinter named Ben Johnson. Johnson, after the starting gun, took off. He left the finite for the infinite. He took home the victory with a record time. He raised his right arm even before crossing the finish line. Carl observed him. He always observes them, his opponents, because everyone at one time in their existence is able to leave something meaningful to you as a legacy, even when they beat you. Except that in Ben Johnson's triumph, there was little that was edifying. Or rather, there was certainly a doping substance called stanozolol. His record was torn up, his participation with the Canadians was questioned, and he was disqualified. But that is another story. The years passed, Carl's 20 years, a youth who flourished on the track in a continuous search for self, for opportunities, for dreams that he could give his soul and his supporters. It was not difficult for him, as when in 1991, on the threshold of 30 years of age, he set a new record in Tokyo at the World Championships. In the long jump, he ceded first place to Mike Powell. Their contest made history, with Powell almost reaching nine meters after a duel full of anxiety and literally memorable jumps. In the 100 meters in the final, Carl was not even the favorite. The spotlights were all on Leroy Burrell, who in the 100 meter qualifier set a record, and therefore in everyone's eyes, he was destined for gold. Lewis, yes, a very good runner, but perhaps his time had passed. Perhaps it was time to make room for others. Burrell was a few years younger than Carl, who at 30 years of age perhaps already had his best days behind him. Everyone was ready to jump onto the new winner's bandwagon. The problem was that no one decided who was to be the winner. And life, as usual, is the best author, devising ealing, memorable and unexpected plot twists for its characters. It was in Tokyo, after the shot starting the race, in a burst of impressive speed, they all ran at speeds a normal human could not sustain in that gallery of lightning where Lewis won again, setting a record with 9.86. He raised his arms to the sky, embraced his rival teammate Dennis Mitchell, hugging him. There was no longer any rivalry, supposing that there ever had been any, supposing that it is not an outdated concept. Carl Lewis was once again the son of the wind. You can't tell a legend what he should or shouldn't do, especially if, as in Lewis's case, he has thoroughly understood how control manages to stem the extravagances of power. Many, in 1994, advised him not to do it. Don't do that advertisement. 
Almost 30 years later, every now and then he still thinks about that ad. He still has the photos that Annie Leibovitz took in 1994 for an advertising campaign. Don't do it, Carl. And instead, he did do it. The campaign was by Pirelli. The payoff reads, power is nothing without control. And in order to get the concept across better, Carl posed in athlete's attire as if he were at the starting line, his muscles taut, his expression concentrated, and high heels, sparkling red on his feet. Those shoes are beautiful, but they make control difficult. It's an important message, and Carl Lewis is the perfect testimonial for that revolutionary campaign. Many advised him not to participate. A male athlete immortalised in women's shoes risks his respectability and a sportsman would never call his virility into question. Carl, however, is above all this. He well knows what the value of that image is and above all how power is worth so little without control. He immediately grasped the potential of their campaign. As a man who always had looked around himself to grow, he understood that nothing like this had ever been done in advertising. That you could only expect such a move from a champion like him, who was never banal. This was such a pioneering move. That photo, that campaign, if there was still a need to repeat it, shot around the world. Carl Lewis has never just settled for something. Even when everyone told him that it was not a good idea to do something. As then, at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, at 35, he seemed to be taking part more out of politeness than a real opportunity for victory. He knew well that he was entering in the retirement zone after those Olympics, but he did not want to miss a unique opportunity to go out in style. At the finals, in a blue suit with the number 2374, he carried out the honour of the United States high. Behind him, the stadium was a chorus of supporting cheers. At the long jump final, before his performance, he passed his tongue over his lips, kept his eyes open. No, more than that. They were wide open. He observed and set off. His arms and legs moved, spread out and wide open. Infinity passed between their opening and closing. America held its breath because the king seemed to have returned in those few seconds that separated takeoff from landing. Carl was in flight and reflected on a life built on method, sacrifices, in which for years, his 20 years, he had done nothing but focus, almost losing the concept of time. After all, perhaps it is normal that this is the case, if you want to be time, if you want to make it feel as far as possible a part of you. He landed, Lewis, and he took home his last gold medal, thanks to that last high leap. Around him, the Americans cried out in joy. He was wearing the winner's track jacket, he prepared for the ceremony. He wasn't swaggering. He was happy. He knew he had done what he had always wanted to do. In Atalanta in 1996, while celebrating his gold, Lewis had his father's image on his mind. He was no longer here on Earth. He had just left it. 
he was elsewhere. But at that moment, he felt him close. He wanted to hug him. He wanted to kiss him. Is this perhaps the true glory? To feel others even when they are no more, as if they were tangible presences, and instead are only memories. Today, many years later, Lewis still finds several young athletes asking him how to make a difference. The answer is always the same. You only need to understand how to get the best from yourself. For Carl Lewis, if you want to be someone, whether you're a politician, a sports person, a film star, whatever, you have to leave the ordinary behind. You need to demonstrate that you can do something more than just everyday being in the world. And if others understand it, that means you have made it. These are the paths of a life with its emerging, falling, and rising again. It's the desire to leave a trace, no matter what, even when everything is against you. These are the stories of patterns. patterns.